get started. Well, I guess Eric wanted to say a few more things about me uh, by way of introduction, <laughs> but someone in his family was preventing that. Uh, so I come to you from just down the street. My name is Rick Schaefer. Uh, we live on Indian School and in 19th, uh, kind of the war zone over there by Redemption Alhambra. Uh, you watch helicopters fly over the city, they're probably flying over my house. That's sort of the neighborhood bird, the police helicopter where we live. Uh, been in the PCA for a long time. The, probably the most notable thing about uh, my family is we actually have two sets of twins. Um, we have two set of twin boys, a little bit older. My boys are 28, uh, two 28 year olds, and we have two 27 year olds. Uh, so. Even more, we were married three years and had four kids. And uh, it was great, actually, to be introduced at a church. I was coming on staff as a youth pastor, and they introduced me. They didn't say anything about the twins. They just said, we'd been married three years, and we had four kids, and we're bringing him on staff. And people like, the math doesn't work out here. And we just kind of let that hang out there for a while before we said two sets of twins. So my wife is the hero in the family. Uh, all of our kids now live in California, and we're actually expecting our first grandson in September, so it's weird to be almost a grandfather. Um, uh, just a word or two about our ministry. Uh, been a church planter with the PCA all over sort of California. Before that was in other denominations in Oregon and elsewhere. I've been in Texas, but Recently, my wife and I met on the mission field in Germany back in the late 80s. We were with OM, and we met in Germany and spent a summer there. Then we went to what was Yugoslavia. And uh, here about uh, almost four years ago, we went on the mission field again and spent uh, about a year and went back to Germany. And uh, we're in Kreuzberg area of Berlin and worked with the Muslims and poor in that area. And God really gave us a heart for that. And that actually informed some of the area of the city that we chose to move into. So we're in that part of the area. It's kind of a challenged area. I'm going to talk about it. But part of what we're doing is we actually work with mission agencies and we're training spiritual leadership, church planting teams, and sort of involved, in fact, I leave here in a couple of weeks, and we're involved in ministry in Europe and South America, uh, just various places around the world, training spiritual leaders and church planters. So that's sort of our ministry in a nutshell. That really doesn't tell you much, but it gives you a, for knowing nothing about me, it tells you probably as much as you need to know at the moment. So you're not here to hear about my life. You're here to hear from the Word. So we're going to look at Psalm 67 which I'm really excited to talk about. I mentioned I live in a challenged neighborhood. Um, my neighborhood is challenged culturally, it's challenged economically, it's challenged morally. Uh, we have people in our group that are coming off of drugs. We have a, the drug dealer that put our people on drugs. We have people in various economic strata on the bottom, on the bottom end. We just face all kinds of issues in our neighborhood, and it's something that's actually kind of unique in our life. And when we moved into the street, we had a group of people at our house, and we opened the window, and let me tell you something, an experience I had that I never had before. The first day moving into our house, I opened our blinds, and a woman walked by 
with a water jug on her head like she was walking through Central Africa. And I said, okay, I know I'm in the right place. Right? Never have I seen this before in the U.S. So here months later, we opened the window and we looked and we were describing our neighborhood. And I asked a question. I said, what is the hope for this neighborhood? Can it change? Should we actually have hope and expectation that the gospel and our presence here can have a profound, real change in the culture and in the people of this neighborhood? Do we actually believe that the gospel changes everything? When I was going to seminary, that was a phrase that came from Tim Keller, and it was a phrase that was employed everywhere I went. It was a part of the DNA of every church. The gospel changes everything. And it's one thing to say that as a confession. It's another thing to operate out of that belief. It's another thing to believe deep in the primal recesses of your soul that the gospel actually has the ability to, to change everything, to change whatever I see when I look out the window, to change whatever I see in my neighborhood, whoever passes by, whatsoever there. Or do we actually believe when we watch the people walk by our, our windows that what's out there is too lost, it's too dark, it's too hopeless, or it's too hard and just too costly? Do we confessionally believe the gospel changes everything, but operationally, we kind of, if we're really honest, we just believe too lost, too difficult, too hard, too dark, too costly. Not really. Those are the things that we were facing when we moved in our house. And these are some of the things that I think Psalm 67 addresses and some of the things that we're going to look at. This is a short psalm, but I can promise you we're not going to get to the end of my notes. I have a problem this in this point in my life, everywhere I'm asked to go speak, I get to speak for three hours. You would think, what kind of place on earth would allow someone to come and speak for three hours, especially to 20-something-year-olds? But that's how we roll. So when I come, and like, you got 30 minutes. I'm like, I don't know how to wear that size shoe anymore. So um, it's kind of difficult for me. So I hope we're going to get pretty far in this, but we'll see where we get. One, the first thing I want to do before we really dive in this is I want to talk about hope. I want to talk about the hope that happens literally when we look out our windows. My neighborhood is your neighborhood. My problems may not be your problems, but the problems that you're facing are just as profound and just as deep. And so I want to talk about the hope and the level of expectation that that sometimes we have or should have when we look out the window into our family, into our work environment, into the places that we live, into the groups or the associations that God has placed us into, what kind of hope and expectation do we have or should we have? Because if I was, on, if I was being honest, I would say that for the longest times, I would, we would talk about and use a language of conversion and we'd pray, Lord, we want to see these people come to faith. And that was honest and true. But then our expectations were obviously at, very often at a lower level. We were happy to see them attend something. We got excited about relationships. 
We got, a we got excited about a chance just to have conversation and to engage or to see them attend something that we were doing. In our neighborhood, we do neighborhood breakfasts. We have a big front yard. We have big trees. So we just throw out tables and we cook breakfast and we invite everybody. So how did we meet our neighborhood? Neighborhood breakfast. On one hand, we could sort of pat ourselves on the back and say, you know what? We're doing a great thing. Look how many people came to our neighborhood breakfast. And it's a good thing that people came. We've seen a lot of people come. That's how we meet people. But the expectation of this psalm raises the bar much higher. The hope of this psalm, the hope of the Bible from one end to the other, the hope of the gospel is not that people would merely attend and fill pews or attend our events or our taco night or my breakfast or anything like that. The hope of this psalm is for a rejoicing people who find their gladness in God. I don't want my drug dealer across the street to merely stop selling drugs, clean up her life, and be a part of our group. The hope of this psalm is that she becomes a rejoicer in God whose heart finds its gladness in the very person of God. That's a much higher hope. In my own ability, it may be possible for me to get her off of drugs. She's also on drugs. It may be possible for me to stop to see her stop selling drugs, to get economically stable. But like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 3, 5, who's sufficient for th these things? I'm not sufficient to make her heart rejoice in God. I can't give her a soul that finds its deepest gladness in the very character and the very nature of God. Walk with Jesus just a bit, and you know what I'm saying is true. We can't change the heart. We can't make people rejoice in the Lord always. They may wave their hand. They may even sign on to our creed. They may live out our ethic. But they will not rejoice in God unless something that has the fingerprint of God on it actually touches their life. That's what this psalm is all about. So we're talking about hope. And I just want to clarify that the hope that this psalm is talking about really raises the bar. And it keeps us oriented where our hope should be. So let me give you the main idea that we're going after. Here's the main idea of this message. Here's the main idea of this psalm. It's this. The hope of the world, which is therefore the hope of your street, or the hope of your family, or the hope of your neighborhood, or your workplace, or whatever it is, whatever circle of influence that God has placed you in, the hope of that circle of that circle rejoicing in God is that we would receive an ongoing, abundant supply of grace. Let me say it again. The hope of your neighborhood, the hope of my neighborhood, is that I would hope, that I would receive, and that you would receive an ongoing, abundant supply of grace. What Monica, my neighbor, and Mike, and Craig, and so many others, who will be at so many, most of them will be at my house tonight. What they need from me, but they cannot articulate. They don't know that they need this from me. 
and your neighbors don't know that they need this from you, if you were to ask them, not one of them would say this. But the thing that your neighborhood needs most from you is that you would receive an ongoing, abundant supply of God's grace. Who was it? John Owen said, the thing that my church needs most from me is my holiness. The thing that your neighborhood needs most from you is your receiving an ongoing supply of grace so your cup runneth over. There's nothing more that they need from you that you would sit at the fount of God's grace, right? That's what my neighborhood needs from me. And so if that's the case, this informs my missional strategy. This informs the way I'm going to engage my neighborhood. This informs the way I pray about my neighborhood. This informs my DNA of everything that I do. Because my neighborhood desperately needs the nearness of God to be my greatest good. They need me near the cross. My heart is prone to wander. They just, we just sang that. And we know that to where we become ambivalent. We become indifferent. We just kind of forget about them. They're just nice people or they're just in our neighborhood. And so I need to stay near the cross. I desperately need the flow of God's grace. I need His Spirit overwhelming me, overcoming me, so that I'm intentional, and I'm thoughtful, and I'm loving, and I'm engaging, and I'm remembering my neighbors and my neighborhood. And so that I can be God's presence. So this is our main idea. I already see I have no hope of finishing this. So point number one in that, in that regard. We need to recover this kind of biblical hope, what Jack Miller calls biblical expectancy. Man, you guys know who Jack Miller is? Tim Keller mentor. You know if you know Tim Keller? If you know Tim Keller, you know Jack Miller. Jack Miller had a phrase he called biblical expectancy. I think it's one of the greatest things he ever wrote about. And when I say recover, I, I mean that on purpose in, in this very specific kind of way. Because if I were to go through the room and if I were to ask people, what is the gospel? I think I would get a, a, decent, under, you know, a decent definition, I would hope, of what the gospel is. I want to believe the best. I don't know who you are. You don't know who I am. But you're going to believe the best. If I were to ask, hey, what are the purposes of God for this church and the neighborhood in this world? I think we would under, you know, we'd be able to, to give some kind of sense where, hey, there's a, been a great commission and God has sent us out and we're his representatives in this world. If we, if we were to talk about the lost and their condition, I think that there would be some kind of agreement on that and we would all agree to these things. But somehow, when we're not just speaking about us, I'm speaking about the Western church. Most of my life, to know me in my ministry right now, I have a, we, we get to engage with people all over the U.S. and all over the world. So I feel like I get a sense of the Western church. And if anything, this, to me, kind of describes the Western church right now, it's a pervasive culture of passivity. We have a, an abstract intellectual concept of what it is, what the mission of God is, what the gospel of, and the condition of the lost, even the condition of our, own, of our own life. But the pervasive culture in the church is one that is passive. 
unlike what you see happening in the Middle East, unlike what you see happening in Pakistan and in India, the old Soviet Central Asia and South America and places like that where the gospel is exploding. I, uh, we were reading a, a Muslim cleric in Iran here about nine months ago who was writing and saying we cannot get in front of the tide of this Christian movement that's exploding in Iran. If you would have asked me when I was 20 years old, where do you expect to see the gospel explode in the next bunch of decades? Iran wouldn't have made the list. Any of those countries, I mean, that was the old 20, you know, what was it, the 10, uh, 1040 window, right? And yet God is, the gospel is exploding there. But here we still have this culture of passivity. And so that's why I say we need to recover a biblical sense of expectancy about what God has promised to do in this world. I'm 53. When I was 40, 13 years ago, I'd been to seminary twice. It's a story. And I was at a real low point, had planted a church in Long Beach, California. It was a church, it was a thriving church, but I was in the lowest, probably the lowest point of my life. Went to Westminster Seminary in California, did really well there, loved it. But I remember coming, sitting there at 40 years old, thinking, God, I have no expectation for what you're going to do in this world. Nothing was informing the way. I was writing stuff on a page. We were doing, you know, five-year strategic plan, three-year strategic plan. But none of it, I felt like, came from this deep-seated conviction that this is what God was doing in this world. And I had to come to grips with it. I said, God, I have no expectation for what... Oh, this thing moves. (laughs) I'm going to dump this water somewhere. Um, Does this go all the way down if I keep leaning on it? Or is that it? I think that's it. Okay. Um, I said, Lord, I have no expectation for what you've promised to do in this world. I don't want to be just a rosy-eyed optimist. I don't just want to create stuff. I don't want to hang my hat on stuff that's going to make me feel good. Here's what I prayed to the Lord. I said, Lord, I need to know what you promised to do in the blood of your son. I felt like you had written promises, dipped your finger in the blood of your son. And for the sake of his glory, you've promised to do stuff in this world. And I need to know what that is. And I have no idea what that actually is. For all my theology, that had eluded me because it wasn't animating my life. It wasn't animating my expectations. And so I just simply said, teach me. And I knew I needed to learn all. I had studied language, done all that stuff that you do, but I knew nothing. And so I went on this journey through the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah became my friend, but all the prophets. And I said, Lord, teach me what they were expecting in the coming of your your Messiah what you had promised to do this in this world, and what God had begun to do through that period as he was recovering and restoring and actually granting me some biblical expectancy of what God had promised to do 
in the coming of the Messiah and in the bringing of the kingdom because God had great intentions and plans for what would happen and what is currently unfolding in this world. And I wanted my life to line up with that. I wanted to serve His purposes. I wanted to have hope. I feel like Braveheart. Like I want to believe like He believes. I wanted to have hope like He had hoped. And I, I realized like I had none. And so I asked God to teach me. And for the first time in my life, I felt like 1 John 2 talks about we have an anointing and He teaches us. And God began to teach me and shape my expectations. And He began to align my operational theology with my confessional theology. This is a huge issue. This is one of those things you just got to sit on. Because very often the thing that we confess with our mouth, and we're going to confess something here in a while, and the thing that we operate out of don't line up. When I get alone and when I hit the hard times of life, when I look at my neighborhood, there's the thing that I confess and there's the way that I operate. When I find myself in this situation with these kind of people, there's the, what I confess and there's the thing that I operate out of. And the passive church today very often is dealing with the issue of our confessional beliefs and our operational beliefs don't line up. And we need to let the Spirit of God and the grace of God take us through a process where He begins to align those things again. Where we're living out of what we believe. We're in Psalm 67, but there's a great illustration of this, of what needs to happen in Psalm 78. I'm just going to flip there. Asaph says this in verse 7. Actually, verse. I'm just going to read 5 to 7. Uh, speaking about God, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. And, and arise and tell them to their children, key phrase, so that they should set their hope in God. What does that mean? You turn over to verses 18 through 20 and it explains it. They tested God in their heart by demanding food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? The question is, this hope that asks, God, can you actually set a table in the wilderness? And Asa said, the thing that God did was in relationship to circumstances that were as trying as setting a table in the wilderness. Because they had no water, and yet he brought water out of a rock. They needed bread. There was no bread to be found. He had bread descend from heaven. He provided meat. He blew in the birds. And yet, in, in the natural, in the natural course of things, to be in the wilderness, you would look at that situation and you would say, too hard, too difficult for anything like that to happen. But the nature of the kingdom is God sets a table in the wilderness. When things are beyond hope, Romans 4, Abraham, the God of hope acts when no conceivable way forward can be imagined or can be seen. When I look out my window and I look at my neighborhood and I see who walks by my door, 
in the natural, I can see no conceivable way any of this could ever change. But the God that I serve has promised me in the blood of His Son that He sets a table in the wilderness. And our our message to people is to invite them to something that you can't do and that I can't do, but that He does. He's a God who meets people in the wilderness, and He actually turns people who are wilderness into springs of water. That's our expectation about the coming of the kingdom. I take barren people who are dead in their sins, who are lost and without hope, and because of who I am as the Creator God, I turn them into springs of water. I take their sorrow, and it's not just because of time and water passing through the bridge. It's because of the fingerprint of God and the movement of the Spirit and the outpouring of my grace. I turn their sorrow into joy, and I turn their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and their blindness into eyes that see. This is who I am. This is what it means to to know the Lord, to follow the Lord, and to serve the Lord. I remember reading this, and I came to Isaiah 41.20, and this is the context where Isaiah is describing the arrival of the kingdom, and Mark in chapter 1 actually points to this. When he's speaking about the good news of the gospel, he's saying, look, all of this is happening. All the stuff that Isaiah talked about is happening. And then you get to Isaiah 41.20, and he says, as describing this dynamic of the arrival of the kingdom through the Messiah, he says, so that the nations might see and consider together that the hand of the Lord has done this. Isaiah 41.20 And I remember putting my Bible down so caught up in what God had promised you and He's promised me and it is the inheritance of this church and of my work and every other work. His promise to you is, do you understand that because of the level that I'm committed to the glory of my Son, I'm going to work in such a profound way and such magnitude that people will consider together that there's no explanation for what we see, but that the hand of the Lord has done this. When Katie and I, Katie's my wife, look in our room sometime and we see who's sitting there, That's the story God wants to tell. Like, Rick, there's no explanation why these people would be hanging out together. The only explanation for these people to be in this room doing what they're doing is that the hand of the Lord is doing this. There is no other explanation. There's no explanation for what we've seen this year in a year of COVID. We baptized more people this year than I have any other year in my life. And we just landed. We've only been here a little over a year. What is the explanation? Is because we have some great strategic plan? My strategic plan is like three weeks. I can see three weeks in front of me. I'm like a rhino. I can barely see in front of where I'm going. But God has promised to work in such a way that everybody will know the hand of the Lord has done this. It's got His fingerprint on this. So the question we need to ask is this. Do we actually believe this? The question everybody asks me when you do ministry is, what are you doing? We're asking the wrong sets of questions. Here's the question we should be asking one another. What do you believe? 
Jesus, people came to Jesus and asked him, John chapter 6, what shall we do that we might do the works of God, Jesus? This is the work of God that you believe. What are you doing to do the work of believing? What do you believe that God has promised to do through you in the bringing of his kingdom and the exalting of his son? What do you actually believe the coming of the kingdom. What is the good news about that? What do you believe? I think that that's far more of an important question than what are you doing. I think we have some range of possible. We have a lot of range. It's like, hey, this is the way forward. What's crucial is what do we believe? Man, there's so much I could say about this. Do we believe that God works through a praying people, that when God determines to move, he moves through a praying people? Picture Revelation 8 and the prayers of the people ascending like incense and being tossed back out on the earth and the prayers of the saints essentially shaping God's activity in, in the world. If you were to look at Romans chapter 15, you would find Paul operating out of this set of beliefs, this expectation that the promises that God had made to the fathers, including Abraham, like in Genesis chapter 12, to bless the world, he had fulfilled those things in the coming of Jesus. He was fulfilling those promises and making them as a guarantee. And Paul says, as a result of that, because I believe that, I am making it my ambition to take the gospel into you people to Rome and possibly to the people in Spain because I believe that God is confirming his promises to bless the world. He's operating out of these beliefs and so he's making these, he has these grand intentions, I call them kingdom ambitions, to take the gospel into the world. And what's great about this is he says, I think down in, towards the end of chapter 15, he says, and I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Why? How can he know that? Because he's convinced that this is what God is doing in the world. He's convinced that when God made that promise to Abraham to bless the world, that that was the gospel, which he says in Galatians 3, and he's fulfilling that to bless the world, and Paul's just lining up with that, and he knows that we can go to the darkest, most difficult, most sinful, most evil parts of this world, and have expectation that God will move, not because of my personality type, not because of my gift mix, not because of the uniqueness of a set of circumstances, but because God had made a covenantal promise to bless this world and to exalt Jesus, and we can get in line with that and believe that. <laughs> We're going to hit point two of four. So we're just going to hit this. There's so much to say, so I'll just encourage you to, to, to mull over this song. If God's chosen to bless this world, which is the gospel, by being good to us, pouring out his grace on us, and blessing us, this is the logic of the song. Then it seems to me that we need to cultivate and develop a deep thirst for this grace. That's what the psalmist is saying. God, be gracious to us for their sake, 
God be gracious to us for their sake. Their hope is that you would be gracious to us. And so if you need to be, if the hope of the world is you being gracious to us, then we need to develop a thirst for that grace. I'm on keto right now. And the first two weeks of keto were not a joy. I like carbs, and I only like so much of the other stuff. And so one week into keto, man, all I could think about was bread and all the stuff I'm not allowed to eat. It was this, it was this awakening presence that would not leave me. It was this deep hunger for, please, carbs. Any, just, I don't care what it looks like, just give me carbs. And I think what I'm trying to describe is something that kind of feels like that. There's something that we carry with us. Like when Jesus taught us to pray in Luke chapter 11, where the guy bangs, this is how Jesus taught us to pray. Luke chapter 11, the guy comes to him at midnight and bangs on the door. And he calls it impudence, which is like, this is kind of inappropriate to be approaching him the way you're doing this. Except that Jesus told us to do this. He says, if you actually understood your condition and your need and what I have and my desire to give, you would bang on the door and say, Lord, I have nothing unless you give me something to give to them. And there's a thirst in our soul that says, Lord, I have nothing to give to my neighborhood unless you give me something to give to them. And it kind of seizes us. And like Jacob wrestling, we will not let him go. Or like Isaiah, what is it? Uh, 62 says, give the Lord no rest. We give him no rest until he pours out that John 7 out of your innermost being will flow these rivers of, of life. God, I need this kind of grace. They need from me this grace. You're, for me to reflect Your glory in this neighborhood, I need grace. Lord, You've called me to be a light to the nations, but sometimes I feel the wattage of my light is like 10 watts. Like, yeah, you can see it if you get close enough. But like, Lord, I want more wattage in my light bulb. I want to give off greater light. So please shine the light of your glory in my heart so it burns. So I'm animated by your glory. And they see your glory coming from me. And that's all they see from me. And they may not believe my Jesus, but they say, I don't know if I believe it yet, but I know that he believes it. And I respect His life. We need a thirst for this kind of grace. We've been called as salt. We've been called as light. We've been called as aroma. We've been called as a people in whom, for whom this Word needs to be living and active. There's too many people doing the one-minute devotional. I did my devotions. I did my reading. That's not what this book is. This book is an encounter with the living God. 
It says when we come to it, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit because it's alive and living and active. And the morning star begins to arise in my heart. And the blood that speaks louder than the blood of Abel begins to speak to me so that today I hear His voice as I open this book. That is not just a daily reading. That makes this book like no other book on the planet. There's something powerful about reading this book, but I can't do that unless the Spirit of God does something in me and the grace of God overflows. But I so long to encounter God that way that I pray there's a thirst in me. God, give me your grace because I can't do that in and of myself. We need a thirst for this. And lastly, I'm going to wrap up with this. I'm going to wrap up halfway through my message with this. God has called us to be witnesses. Look, whoever you, whoever you are as a follower of Jesus, we have identity. Your identity as it relates to God is son or child of God. Your identity as it relates to the community is part of the body of Christ or the bride of Christ. We're part of the community. It's actually part of our identity. We have an identity as it relates to the world. We're his witnesses. It's actually who we are. And Jesus, when he says this, he's, he's invoking the imagery of Isaiah. Because in Isaiah, God called the people of Israel his witnesses. But he said, the problem with my witnesses is they have eyes and they don't see. They have ears and they don't hear. They're not encountering me as the living God and they're not able to bear witness of me to the world. They might go to temple. They might live in Jerusalem. They may bring their sacrifices, but they're not functioning as witnesses because there's nothing of the life of God in the soul of that people. So he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give them eyes that see and ears that hear so that they see and that they encounter me and they represent me. The Spirit of the living God is going to come upon them so that they can bear witness that they have encountered the living God to the world. I can't do that. You can't do that. Everything about us will hinder us from doing that unless the Spirit of God and the grace of God animates us and shapes everything about us. People, this, we live in a precarious hour. I may not be here again. Who knows? Maybe Gray will have me back next year when he's gone. I don't think he gets a sabbatical every year, though, right? If not, please hire me uh, if he does. Um, but the great need, look, I, I've only met one or two of you. The great need of this church without even knowing you. I, I know nothing about this church. I know nothing about most of the churches in Phoenix. But I know the hour in that we live. And I think you do too. And the great need is to see what Psalm 67 is talking about. We can be filled with apologetics, and yet our apologetics will fall on deaf ears. We can wave signs and no one will see. And even if we know our apologetics, and if it doesn't fall, if it, people begin to respond, we'll come with the wrong attitude and the wrong spirit. We'll just do it all wrong. Unless God is gracious to us. I will not extend love. I will not be filled with joy. I won't have the peace of God. I won't speak as I should the oracles of God. I'll just speak as Rick. And you'll speak as you. But people, that 
this is an hour that the church needs to change. Our country is desperate for it, the city is desperate for it, and where you live is desperate for it. People everywhere are turning away from Jesus, and they're turning away from church, and they're turning away from Christianity because they have the wrong concept of what it means to be a follower of Jesus because they're looking at people whose confessional theology and operational theology do not line up. They see very little of the fingerprint of God on them. It looks like they've been eating lemons instead of oranges, and like, why would I want to follow that? Why would I want to participate in that? There's obvious, it just seems like a bunch of ethics. It's just like God is out to just restrict life. We need to pre offer the world a different Christianity, which is actually the biblical Christianity, and the real Jesus. I don't know how many times I've told people after, they're at the, after they tell me, look, I don't want Jesus because, and I say, look, I don't want that Jesus either. But that Jesus doesn't exist. That's not the real Jesus. Let me introduce you to the real Jesus. I'll tell you what, you speak honestly for you, I'll speak honestly for me, but let's let him speak honestly for himself. Right? And then let's all have a chat. <laughs> This is the day and this is the hour in which we live. Let me pray. Father God, even as I bow my head, I'm just reminded right now that not only do you offer this, but then you say, understand, little children, it's my good pleasure to grant you this. Lord, you're, the, you're a cheerful giver of all that we need. You just want us to ask. I pray, Lord, that we would leave today with something seizing our heart, that you would make us restless, that you would make us people who knock and seek and ask and do so relentlessly, tenaciously, until we receive from you. Thank you for your word, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Did you see